What a joy to come and be with you again. I am glad for casual Sunday. I'm not a Thai guy. Uh, and uh, I think sometimes my wife looks at me, well, sometimes she looks at me when I come out with a tie and she goes, nah, it doesn't match. And so uh, I don't think I'm colorblind, but uh, I think my children often think that I am. Well, I look forward to spending uh, the next uh, five weeks with you in uh, the book of Jonah as uh, we begin to discover the richness of God's heart uh, in the book of Jonah. It's good for us always to recognize, I'm going to move this if that's okay, uh, some of the aspects of a book before we begin to study it. And there's some interesting things about the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is placed in the Bible among the minor prophets. And it's interesting that Jonah is among the minor prophets for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, it's a minor prophet simply because of the quantity of words. I hope that you know that minor prophets are minor simply because they have, they're shorter, and that's about it, but their message is great. And so we should never uh, demean the minor prophets because they're minor uh, for any other reason other than the length of their text. The interesting thing about Jonah is this that unlike the other minor prophets who are prophesying within their writings, Jonah is actually a historical narrative. There's actually no prophetic language coming forth from Jonah uh, uh, that, uh, that we see. In fact, the book of Jonah itself is prophetic because it actually points us to the heart of God and how far we are away from the heart of God. So in some ways, it's prophetic to Israel itself through the narrative and the disobedience of Jonah and this whole uh, work that God is going to do in Jonah and in us as well. Sadly, the message of the book of Jonah has been overshadowed by a number, by people often seeing it as a big fish story. Uh, And if you know anybody who fishes a lot, I have a friend, pastor friend who fishes a lot, and his stories get bigger and bigger and bigger until you begin to wonder how big was the fish actually, right? And, uh, and so people tend to view Jonah as a big fish story, not simply because uh, uh, of the big fish in the middle of the story, but wondering, is it actually true? So how are we to take the book of Jonah? Some would argue that Jonah is an allegory much like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's a story that tells us of some spiritual perspectives, if you, if you would, but we're not really to take it as literal truth. Uh, others would say that it is a parable, like one of Je- that Jesus used in his teaching during his earthly ministry. Spiritual story with an overarching spiritual lesson, but not a narrative, not a narrative reality. Well, I would disagree with both of these, and I hope you would as well. Uh, and, the, and it's important to understand why. Uh, most, most of us uh, recognize that, uh, or would say that uh, Jonah is an actual narrative that happened. Now, why, do I, why would I say that? What would be my claims for it? Uh, one of the wonderful things about uh, Jesus especially, but then later on the apostles, is how they use the Old Testament. And it's interesting that as Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he refers to Jonah and the story of Jonah 
for some of the most important aspects of his ministry. So here's Jesus, the Son of God, referring back to a narrative reality which is going to be reflective on his narrative reality as well. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, and then Luke 11, 29 through 32, he refers to the sign of Jonah, which is that as Jonah was in the belly of uh, the great fish for three days, so will the Son of Man, pointing to his uh, own uh, death and resurrection, be in uh, the belly of the earth for three, three days. And uh, earlier uh, in, the, in the gospel accounts, uh, he refers to the repentance of Nineveh. And that Nineveh's repentance, they will stand on judgment day, speaking to Israel. And they will have judgment upon you, Israel, for your unbelief in the day of Jesus. And so I think that there's a lot of wonderful things for us to learn. But I would suggest to us, uh, Jonah is used in many different ways uh, uh, by uh, many different preachers. Often the first time I really heard a wonderful exposition of Jonah was I was listening to uh, the uh, messages at uh, uh, Urbana and uh, Ajith Fernando preached on Jonah. And it was a missions conference and it had to do with missions. And I believe that it has to do a lot with missions, but I think it's even more than that. I would suggest to us this uh, afternoon that the major message of the book of Jonah is really the heart of God for the lost and for the found. The heart of God for the lost and for the found. Nineveh is obviously the lost. Jonah in Israel is actually the found, and we will see this interplay between God revealing Jonah's heart, revealing Israel's heart, revealing our heart that so often looks so different from his heart. And the desire for that is that our hearts would be quickened unto repentance to be more like the heart of God, both for the found and for the lost. We're going to look at three verses uh, today, and so we're going to be looking at the first three verses of the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, would you now grant your grace and mercy to us as you open your word to us and open our hearts to your word, examining us to see if our hearts reflect your great heart. Father, would you pour out your spirit and would your spirit be our teacher, that you would change us and transform us from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
many of the elders here will uh, know that in the past uh, number of years, we have had actually two pastors who have had major heart-related issues. Uh, one went in for a pretty regular checkup, and the doctor was checking his heart, and uh, he said, boy, I think we need to do these, these certain tests, and it was just a regular checkup, and they did these uh, tests, and the cardiologist came in, looked at the test, they did another test, and, and that, uh, the cardiologist comes in, and he says this. He said, you need to get your affairs in order, and you need to have any conversations that you need to have with your children and your wife, because tomorrow, I think it was quintuple bypass surgery. And so he called all of his children, some that were overseas, had the conversations that he needed to have, and his heart was in a major uh, place and problem. What if the doctor had come in, looked at all the tests and said, your heart's fine. Not a big deal. He knew that it was problematic, but he wasn't willing to share that with our friend prognosis of his life would have been very different had that ever happened. And yet God in his grace will always expose his heart to us. And in light of his heart, he exposes our hearts for what they are. And God never exposes the heart of his children in order to shame them but in order to transform them to be more like his heart. And I want to say to you that sometimes when God exposes our heart, it is often painful and it is often ugly. But he does it out of love and he does it out of grace. Now that's often challenging for many of us. Many of us who who our hearts have been exposed or our secrets have been exposed by others, have been revealed to others in order to shame. And so it's hard for us to become open to what God is wanting to do. But God loves us to such a degree that he opens his heart to us and then reveals our heart in order that we might be transformed. And we're going to see this theme throughout the book of Jonah because I would suggest to you the problem in the book of Jonah is actually not Nineveh at all. It is actually Jonah. And it's actually Israel as revealed in the very person of Jonah. But God begins by revealing his heart. And where do we see that? If you would, look with me. It's important that the exposure of our hearts never takes place place in a vacuum. It always takes place because God is showing us his heart first because it's in his heart that he reveals grace to us even at the very beginning. But So where do we see the heart of God and where do we see this grace? Verse 1 tells us that God has a heart for the lost. God's heart for the lost uh, is the first thing that we see in this chapter. So much so that he commands one of his prophets to lead the, leave the chosen people of Israel in order to be sent to an enemy of theirs in order to speak to them. Verse 2, God says to him, arise, this is the word of God coming to the prophet of God, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. 
God has a heart for lost people. And that heart often begins by proclaiming the bad news of sin in order that the grace of God might come as a healing balm to broken hearts who recognize their sinfulness. Now that's often not a message that is going to be preached by the church today. We're all about making people feel good about themselves, but that is not reflective of the heart of God. God reveals our sin to us that we may repent of it, turn to him, and find grace and peace and mercy. So let me ask you, Christian, Christ won. Do you believe that God has a heart for the lost? Think in your own mind, not of just your pleasant neighbor who might not be a Christian, but those people that you really have a difficult, challenging time with. People, if you're honest with yourself, you might say, I don't really like them. I don't care for them. You might even say, I hate them. You might not know them. They may be of a different political persuasion from you. They may be of a different ethnic class from you. They may be uh, your neighbor. They may be a relative. But if you look at your heart, you realize, boy, do I really believe that God has a heart for this person? And not only do you believe it, do you rejoice in the fact that God has a heart for lost people? Now I want to suggest to us that I believe that all of us as good Christian men and women believe that God has a heart for lost people. Why? Because we see it in the scriptures. I don't believe that we always rejoice in that thought. Meaning to say that, wow, God has a heart for the lost people. And as Matthew said, the problem is not with whether there are lost people out there that God is saving for himself. The heart of his people is that they're not ready to go. And then sadly, I don't believe that our heart reflects his heart for the lost. If we're honest, our hearts don't reflect the heart of God for lost people. And that's what we exactly see in Jonah's response to God and his call to go to Nineveh. But God, uh, <clears throat> on the surface, uh, hearing that God is telling Nineveh to go, uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh and call out against it, might seem like a very harsh and unloving reality. But like I mentioned, the good news of the gospel is always proclaimed in light of God's holiness, our sinfulness, which is bad news, and the grace of God in Christ dying on the cross for our sins that allows grace to be what it is. And grace without truth is not grace at all. And so the truth is sometimes often very Hard And notice what God says. He says, call out against them, for their evil has come before me. I would say to us that not speaking of sin when sharing the good news of the gospel of Christ with a non-believer is one of the most unloving things we can actually do. Well, partially, it's not really the gospel, is it? Because to believe without recognizing our need 
through sin is actually to preach a false gospel, to have false converts who feel good about themselves, but who never actually are in Christ. Because they've never actually come to believe their need for Christ, nor accepted them. The only more unloving thing that we could do is to nullify their sin by telling them that God accepts their sin. Well, this passage tells us that God doesn't accept sin, be it theirs or ours. That it has come up against him as an offense. Well, in either case, you might feel better. Uh, you might make them feel better about the condition of their heart momentarily. But in truth, you will actually be lying to them about the good news of the gospel, and you'll be denying the power of the gospel to them. See, in this passage is a message to go. But what we begin to see is that Jonah's response is not quite what God has called him to. Jonah's response, in the truth of his heart, is actually sinful disobedience. One could argue that the book of Jonah is not so much about the transformation of Nineveh as it is about Jonah's gaining the heart of God, which we're kind of left to wonder. Another interesting fact about the book of Jonah, as I'm sure you already know, is uh, the book of Jonah is the only book in the Bible that ends with a question then goes unanswered. Now, uh, when we get to that, I'm going to say that that is very intentional because it's an open-ended question. But it ends with a question that is not ever really answered. And so in light of his heart for the Lord, God reveals to Jonah and to us not only his heart, but our heart. And he does this through helping us to see Jonah's disobedience to what God has called him and revealed him to do. To notice Jonah's disobedience, his heart is really messed up and there's a lot to unravel. The first problem is that Jonah has, uh, um, has is that he has a, uh, he's a selfish believer. I believe in God. The gospel's good for me. It's not really good for them. And sometimes, as the frozen chosen, as we've often been called, we can find ourselves being okay, sitting in our pews, happy, excited about the fact that God drew us to himself. Maybe God gave us a Christian family. And we grew up never knowing a day that we haven't loved the Lord or known that we are loved by God. We're still saved by grace, but sometimes... If we look deep inside of our heart, the reality might be a little bit more ugly than we think. Well, you know, we're okay people. That's why God chose us. Not that bad. And often, all of a sudden, we begin to have this merit quality. And we compare our non-Christian friends to us and say, well, that's why they're not believers. And we miss out and the whole sense of God's grace. So let's turn to Jonah in verse, uh, uh, in verse 2. Notice what it says uh, in uh, uh, Jonah's responses. 
But Jonah, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to, down to Joppa to a, uh, and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with, uh, with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And notice, if you would, that before Jonah responds in this way, there's a conversation here that we actually are, are, uh, are not privy to here, but we are privy to later on. So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Jonah chapter 4 and look at verse 2. Actually, I have it printed out here. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord, this is Jonah, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That is why Jonah ran from God. That conversation that we're told of in chapter 4 actually happens between the word of God coming to Jonah, Jonah arguing with God, chapter 4, verse 2, and then even after that, Jonah runs to flee from the presence of the Lord. And this phrase, and the Lord, uh, Lord, is this not what I said yet when I was in my country, suggests this conversation is actually present here. So what's the real problem? It's not just how mean and how evil the Ninevites are, or how mean and evil the people you and I don't like are. Jonah's real problem was not with Nineveh. Jonah's problem was with God. Jonah had a problem with God. And notice that his real problem was how good and how gracious and how merciful God was. His reason for running is not, oh God, please, not the Ninevites. I'm from Pakistan. Right, I grew up in Pakistan and uh, was born and bred there, uh, uh, and six miles from the Indian border. And I uh, uh, jokingly uh, say that I survived one and a half wars. And people go, well, "How do you survive one and a half war?" That means I didn't survive half of a war. No, I was so in 1965. I was in utero. My mom was, I think, uh, seven months pregnant with me in a trench. Right? In a trench dug in the ground with shells falling all around. She was so pregnant, she writes to her mom and dad that she couldn't move around in the trench. So that was war number one. The Indians would always bomb our city first because it had a, it had a, um, a military base there. Uh, and then in 1971, uh, they did it again. And uh, uh, they bombed our city, it, uh, evacuated in the middle of the night. Uh, air raids, uh, all the good work, uh, all the good stuff from there. So one could say 
this is not true, but one could say that I, as a Pakistani, hate Indians. That's not true, but I have a lot of fun with it. I go through the mall, see an Indian couple, right, and I'll go, Indians, and my wife will go, knock it off, stop. My children laugh, but, uh, and then they'll often ask me, how do you know they're Indians? But I don't, to be honest with you. But I might have a problem with Indians. Jonah might have had a problem with Nineveh, but it's not the problem that is really on the heart. His heart has a problem with God. And this is the first time we see Jonah, we see his response that denies his true belief. It's a, pro- it's pro- it's a problem because what it reveals about his belief. It reveals how his belief about God are really defined by him and not by God. See, I'm okay as long as grace is sufficient for me. But I'm not sure if I want that grace to be given to fill in the blank. Or I might not believe that God could ever change their heart. And so my belief is that it's fine for God to be gracious and merciful as as long as it is to us to whom we determine he should be gracious and merciful to. And so when we decide to share the good news of the gospel, we go to good people. And I would suggest to us that sometimes the people most furthest away from the gospel are good people. You know who are closest to the gospel? According to Jesus, are sinners. But we go to those people who actually don't have a need for the good news of the gospel because we're afraid to take the gospel to those who are furthest away from it in our perception. There's a deception of goodness that we can fall unto and so can Israel. The only way we came to <clears throat> we come to understand this is convincing ourselves that God's mercy and grace is a response to our goodness. We do that in our theology. Arminians do that in their theology. I chose God, therefore he was good to me. Instead of God's grace, his mercy, subduing and changing me. And as soon as God shows mercy to someone that we see as unfit for his mercy, then all of a sudden we don't understand what God's doing. Now this was a big issue for the uh, for the early uh, uh, early church, we see a number of places where uh, we see God reveal Himself through tongues, right? And uh, a tongue, uh, uh, a revelatory gift that has ceased because the canon is now closed, but it was also a gift that uh, reflected the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, our, our charismatic brothers and sisters will say that it's an ongoing gift, but it actually isn't. Why was there tongues in the New Testament? There was tongues in the New Testament because the church was growing, and it was growing out of bounds. What do I mean by that? The first disciples were all Jews, uh, Jews right? Uh, Pentecost was all about Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, 
Philip's going off talking to an Ethiopian eunuch who was kind of a Jewish convert, but he was a foreigner. Then all of a sudden, Philip goes down, he's talking to Samaritans. Oh my goodness, Samaritans aren't worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they send down a couple of apostles and say, nah, this couldn't be true. How could they have ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? They're hated Samaritans. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they speak in tongues and they say, what should keep these men from being baptized? Why? Because God was doing a work that was beyond my ability to see or their ability to see. And all of a sudden, Samaritans are welcome in the club. Oh my goodness. The next thing you know, we're going to be letting Romans in. And sure enough, Cornelius comes in. And him and Peter have this uh, interchanging vision. And God uh, brings Peter to, to Cornelius' life and uh, heart. And he's a non-believer. He's a Gentile, for goodness sake. And all of a sudden, it's like everybody's in the club. It's our club, is it? Or is it God's club? Is God not the one showing grace and mercy? But what's revealed here is this deception that we somehow hold the keys to the club. And that God would not welcome those that he would see fit to save by grace like he did us as well. The second thing we see about Jonah's heart is his belief about God as well. Jonah's sinful response in verse 3 is that Jonah tries to flee. And notice this, Jonah tries to flee. He goes to Tarshish. The destination might be Tarshish, but his desire was to flee from the presence of God. They mention it two times that he was trying to flee from the presence of God. And here's a second faulty response to, true, uh, uh, to, uh, to who, uh, what, what uh, Jonah believed. And when we begin to see God revealing our, our heart, we begin to see these problems in our, in our belief, right? That they're often not biblical. They're often not God-centered. We believe, as Jonah did, that God is omniscient, meaning that he is all-knowing. We believe that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere at all times. And yet our response in our life often denies what we believe. Jonah actually tries to do what he believes is impossible. As a Jew, he believed that God was omnipresent, and yet here he is trying to flee from the presence of of Almighty God. Wow. What shallow theology or what shallow practice Jonah often had. Is there an area in your life where you have good orthodoxy and bad orthopraxy? Orthodoxy is proper belief and our practice denies what we believe. And I would suggest to us that in our quieter moments if we reflect on our life. We have, a pro we, we have those problems as well. Now what we believe here at church is one thing, but often how we live our life is a very, very different thing. And our practice often denies what we believe.
And so sometimes we need to ask ourselves, God, would you reveal your heart to me in those places where my catechism does not reflect the reality of how I walk before you in life? Jonah sought to run from the presence of God. Now we know that Nineveh uh, uh, on a map would be in modern day Iraq. But Tarshish is in modern day Spain. Meaning across the other side, he would have to go east to go to Tarshish. He is going west across the Mediterranean to Tarshish in order to run from the presence of the Lord. And notice something about this prophet of God. If repentance is a 180 degree away from sin and towards God, Jonah's reaction to the call of God can be seen as a 180 degree turn in rebellion against God. God said, go east to to Nineveh. (laughs) He goes west to Tarshish. And before we close, I want uh, us to notice just a couple of things that happens when we're disobedient. And it's important for us to recognize these things because that's exactly what we begin to see in the book of Jonah. Jonah runs and he goes down and he finds a ship. And the first thing I want you to notice is that if you desire to run away from God, do not be surprised at the ease with which you'll find a ship going where you want to go. Jonah went down. He was looking for a ship for Tarshish, and there it was. Just as easy as if they were all lined up. If you, and I want to especially talk to our young people, if you are determined to run from the will of God, do not be surprised if Satan and his demons do not have a limo waiting to take you wherever your heart desires to go. But we live in a church era where we go, the ease of that suggests the blessing of God. But the book of Jonah suggests otherwise. And you might flee from the presence of God for a moment in your thoughts, but you're never away from the presence of God. And not that God's will isn't hard at times, but we know that if you're determined and willful disobedience to run from God, it is more likely to become easy for you than not. And God will allow you to go for a moment. He will pursue you. If you are his chosen child, he will pursue you with severe mercies and grace because he loves you. But though you think that it might be quick, just like Jonah, notice what it says, he paid the fare. Your sin and disobedience to God will always come at a cost. Jonah paid the fare to get on the ship from which he was going to run from the presence of God. And that cost may not always be readily noticeable, But know that while the grace of God is free to us, 
because it costs God his only son, you will always pay the price for sin. But the grace of God is this, that God sent his son to us to pay the penalty for the sin which we so readily committed, that he would take that upon himself, that you and I might go free. Now, much like the old-time adventure dramas, here we are, our hero has just boarded his ship, or not maybe hero, but our uh, main character has boarded the ship, and we're going to have to leave him to next week to see what happens. We know what's going to happen, but to see how God is going to pursue him. And I want to suggest to us, before we close, as we think about the book of Jonah, far too many people think that the rest of chapter 1 is God's punishment to, to Jonah. And I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. You know what punishment for Jonah would be? Sip, sipping margaritas on a beach in Tarshish away from the presence of God. That would be hell on earth. But what he's about to go through is not the judgment he deserves, but the pursuing grace and mercy of God. For those that God loves, though they sin against him. Let's pray. Father, even in our hearts, we Maybe you have revealed in our hearts how shallow some of our theology is. We, knew, we know it full well in our mind. We can speak of it in our answers to questions. But often our, our lives and often our prayers don't reflect the truth of what we believe. We thank you, God, that you have mercy, not only on the lost, but on the found. On the found that have lost their way and have lost the heart of God in becoming comfortable in who they are in the grace of God. So that they, in a place where they are dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone, can begin to reflect self-righteous hearts against others who we deem do not deserve the grace of God. Father, would you have mercy on us? As individuals and as families, would you have mercy on the way we speak and the way we think? Would you meet us in all these areas? Would you forgive us and cleanse us? And would you send us forth not in the confidence that we could ever change a heart, but in the confidence that your grace is sufficient. That your power is made perfect through our weakness, but that the gospel is the power of God unto the salvation of both Jew and Greek and whoever we may not like, be it your will to save them. So make us more like you that in that joy we may find rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.